What a great reminder here at the beginning of the Christmas season that all that we are going to focus on over the coming weeks has its very center in the gospel itself, what Christ has come to do for us. I invite you to open your Bible to Psalm 36 this morning so we can consider our study of select psalms. We are jumping around a little bit, uh, various ones. Psalm 36 this morning, Abigail Eden was living with her mom and dad on a quiet kibbutz in southern Israel. On October 7th, terrorists broke into their home and immediately murdered her mother right in front of Abigail's eyes. She ran to her father, who did his best to cover her and protect her until a rain of bullets killed him and he dropped to the floor. Abigail was taken captive that morning, brought to Gaza, where over the next 50 days, during that time, she turned four years old. Hearts go out to, to her and many others. Abigail is now back uh, with, uh, with relatives, uh, has been released. Many others have not. What we have been seeing uh, every day on the news, the, the scenes and the stories of uh, atrocities ranging from brutal rape and uh, kidnapping to murder, uh, torture, uh, thousands of people dead, hundreds of people uh, kidnapped. These scenes uh, seem to portray human depravity at its worst, uh, a display that I think after the events in World War II, many thought we'd never see the like again. Our exposure to such savagery, and it comes our way on a regular basis, even with news of just vicious criminal activity in our own country. There's, it's, it's a daily diet that we are exposed to, and you know, it's, it's right for us to be alert to the realities of this world, but there's a liability to this uh, constant exposure because as we see images and hear about the, uh, the, the horrible things that sinners do in our world, we might well be tempted to compare ourselves with them and to draw the conclusion, I don't think I'm that bad might even have ventured into the category of good by comparison. Psalm 36 tells us that there's something wrong with that. The reality is we're not good at all. Maybe not as bad, but not Good. Our, our sin may show itself in different forms, uh, 
varying degrees of intensity and frequency, but we carry the very same fallen human nature as every other sinner in the world. And we are capable of the full variety of sin that others have experimented with. Now, David wrote Psalm 36, and he reminds us of this uh, sad reality, but he doesn't despair. Instead, what he does in this psalm is he points us to God. He shows us in this psalm that by comparison, God is the true standard of goodness. He's not only the standard that we need to try to follow, he's also the one that makes us possible for us to get victory over sin. Now, the psalm begins with the bad news. It's describing people. Our, our, our first thought as we read through the first four verses is that, well, he's describing these awful sinners. It's the bad ones that he has in mind. And we, we might think that he's describing them in order for us to be on guard against their influence. Now, that's valid. We do need to be aware of wrong influences that exist all around us, tempting us to follow their example, trying to draw us in. But there's an indication in the first verse that though his description is in the third person, that he really wants us to be thinking about ourselves and for us to identify with the, all the other sinners of the world. We actually can't see that indication in our translation as well as most English translations, but let me read it for you. You follow along in that very first line because here's what the Hebrew text says as I will read it and you'll see the contrast here. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in my heart. David apparently wrote the word my heart. Transgression speaks to my heart, and I am one of these wicked people. Well, why doesn't our translation have that? Well, along with most other English translations, they've concluded that that really doesn't seem to fit. Uh, there was one commentator I read that said that the uh, original text here makes no sense. And, and so following the example of some ancient translations, in fact, if you're using the ESV, you've got a footnote at the bottom of the page that says that there was a Syriac translation and an ancient Latin translation by Jerome, and they changed it to uh, the third person, his. Now, I think that might be um, uh, a, a mistake. I don't think the Hebrew uh, manuscripts are wrong. I think David is saying, and I am one of them. I'm one of those wicked people. 
We need to identify here and then realize that the description in these four verses isn't of the most horrible, terrible things that people do. In fact, it's described both negatively and positively, negatively in the things we don't do and positively about the wrong things that we do. We can well identify with this description. First of all, verses one and two, sin distorts the mind. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in, let's read that as my heart. There's no fear of God before this person's eyes. And again, it's referring to everybody, not just the, uh, not just, uh, the individual who's writing it. No fear of God. Well, you might think, well, that, that, that's not me. I have at least a degree of fear of God. But what if David is describing us at the very moment of temptation? The very moment that our heart is inclined, sin is speaking to my heart. And one of the first thoughts is, yeah, I think I can do that. And I think I can get away with it. At that moment, is there fear of God before your eyes? No, it may exist at other moments, but not that one. At that moment, you're not fearing him nearly as much as you are entertaining the possibility of pleasing yourself. He follows that up in verse two to say, and again, I think it's at that moment, he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. I think I can get away with this. Nobody else will know. Somehow we find it possible with all the other sinners in the world, at the moment that our hearts are inclined towards sin, to forget that God does see. Nobody will see. We comfort ourselves, flatter ourselves. And uh, the hated here would be hated by God. Uh, that would be his punishment. Nothing bad's going to happen. That's the distortion of the mind. You see two things there. Perspective about God is wrong. And perspective about self God won't, won't care, and I can, get, I can do this. I can get away with it, this rationalizing. Besides distorting the mind, sin also then at that moment controls the life, directs the steps. Once you give in to temptation, once you make that choice, and the process starts with a choice. Verse three, the words of his mouth from that point on are trouble and deceit. He's leading himself into trouble and he's trying to cover it up by deceiving others about, his, about what's going on in his heart. He has, notice how this is phrased, he has ceased to, to act wisely and do good. Even if at other times you make the right choices and do what is right, not at this moment. You've ceased that. You're doing something else. 
Verse 4, he plots trouble while on his bed. Sin is not a mistake we make. It's ordinarily a plan that we devise and then follow through. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. The process then moves down this path. He has options. He could stop. He could say no, but he stubbornly refuses the way of escape. I could do what is right. I could do what is good. I could reject evil. But I don't. Instead, I choose to indulge myself. Now, that's the human heart. The human heart is sinful. And we've all got to admit, I'm there. I've done that. I'll probably do it again. That's where we are. Recently, I was talking to a local man. I was looking for an opportunity for the gospel. But at one point, he interrupted me and said, oh, I'm already a believer. Oh, where do you you go to church? Oh, I, I don't go to church anymore. And he had some reasons, some excuses for that. And I thought, well, in the absence of, of uh, hearing the preaching of God's word and so forth, uh, how are you teaching your young children the ways of righteousness? Where is the biblical instruction taking place? He said, oh, I, I've just decided that the best thing to do is just Let them decide for themselves what they believe and how they want to live. And whatever they choose, that'll be okay with me. Whoa. What about the foolishness that God says is bound up in the hearts of those children? You really want that to thrive? Show itself? What a sad commentary on human nature and our propensity to say, well, I don't think I am that bad. I don't think my children are that bad. Oh, the reality is you're not that good. You need help. David now directs our attention to what real goodness looks like. And not just as, wow, look at that and how distant that is. I can never get there. But that same goodness, the goodness of God, offers the help that every individual needs. What a contrast as he launches into this this glorious description of the love of God, telling us that God's love is faithful. Verses 5 and 6 describe four of God's attributes and does so by way of metaphor. And the metaphors all have to do with, uh, with creation and that even notice that these are in descending order. First of all, he says, your steadfast love, a love you can always count on. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. 
There's no limit to that love. His love fills the atmosphere. Your faithfulness extends to the clouds, right? Even the sky itself just proclaims the faithfulness of God. The point here is that there's no lack. His loyalty, his reliability, the Lord always, always stays true. Keep in mind the contrast with us. This is our God. Further, your righteousness is like the mountains of God. They soar above the surface. Your judgments are like the great deep. Uh, Both of those describe the reality that God always does what's right. He always does what's right. Can always count on him. Further, all four of these characteristics are seen in his continual care for all his creatures. The end of verse 6 says, Man and beast, you save, O Lord. Save here in the sense of preserve. Yeah, you sustain us all, all his creatures. Now, this lets us know that David's focus at this point on the love of God is the love that God has for the whole world. God loves all that he has made. And David even includes the the animals that he's created. He loves all people. And the Evidence then shows itself in his care for all people. That care we sometimes refer to as God's common grace. Grace that he distributes all around the world. His reign falls on the just and on the unjust. Anybody who is alive from one moment to the next is alive only because of the grace of God. Verses 7 through 9 continue that theme. Not only can you depend on his character, who he is, you can depend on what he does, his benefits. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind, once again, you see, it's everybody. The children of mankind make refuge in the shadow of your wings. That includes a lot of people that don't think so. (laughs) That don't think they owe God anything. They don't think they're getting any benefits. What I have, I've, I've, I've made myself. And he sustains them despite their attitude, despite their neglect of his praise. Mankind, the children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings, even if they don't know it. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. The whole world is God's house. He owns everything. Every individual benefits from God's generosity. Everybody has a part in his grace. The river of his delights 
every aspect of enjoyment in this world, it all comes from God. Joy is his gift. He's the source of all good. Verse 9, he's also the source of real life. For with you is the fountain of life, the very source of life. All life that exists comes from him. In your light do we see light. It's only as God gives us grace to discern, grace to see, grace to understand the distinction between truth and falsehood. God's responsible for that. He makes the path of truth, the path of real life available. Jan and I got married up in New England, and it wasn't a very long trip to go to Nova Scotia for our honeymoon. Uh, we enjoyed every aspect of, of that province and appreciated uh, what we saw, but there was one objective we had that was toward the end of our trip because there's a, a, there's a spectacular drive across a, the northern peninsula, and it's called Cabot's Trail. And so we were looking forward to that. We had heard about it. But when we got to that far north and the northeast uh, end of the, isle, of the uh, province, the whole area was fogged in. There was nothing to be seen. I mean, it was thick fog and quite common for that area. Uh, you, you take a chance in Nova Scotia that the weather is going to be okay. And we had had some really good weather, but not that day. There was so much to see but we saw none of it that day. And sadly, we drove away. Well, many years later, we had an opportunity as, uh, on an anniversary to make a similar trip and also had as, our, uh, as one of our objectives with that one place we didn't get to see. Sure would be nice if the weather was a little better, but it's quite a drive to get up to that area and as we did, we are driving through, once again, not foggy, but rainy, cold, just gray weather. And so we were prepared for another disappointment. But we spent the night at the entrance to the trail, and the next morning woke up to beautiful blue skies. There was light now. And we eagerly started off on this uh, trail that took us most of that day and just marveled at the amazing views of God's creation. It's all along a coastal route and just uh, huge cliffs and the waves down below. I mean, I, I, can't I can't describe it. God's glory, God's goodness, it was there the first time, but we couldn't see it. The psalmist wrote this psalm so that we could actually get a better view and a greater appreciation, exposing to our eyes the 
goodness of our God. What a God we deserve. How he deserves our gratitude, yes. But how he deserves our turning from sin in order to honor him. That's where David goes next. He has just described common grace that enables the world to survive. But now he turns his attention to what God's people can expect. We have a greater claim here to this loving loyalty, this steadfast love. So verse 10, it's that special relationship between God and what David says in verse 10, uh, between him and those who know you. The word know here uh, has behind it the idea of those who have chosen to follow you. Those who have committed themselves to this relationship because now with the contrast of the first part of the psalm and the middle part describing God, now we become more aware of our desperate need for his help. How can I stop living like the rest of the world when I've got this sinful nature? You see, the need for God's grace is urgent. God's grace for victory. So David says in verse 10, Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. How did they get upright? Well, those who know God come to that knowledge by choosing the grace that he freely offers. To become upright in heart, we, sinful people, can be upright in heart. That's the product of God's grace. It's him giving us his righteousness through the death and resurrection of his son, the very son whose arrival on this earth we will be celebrating for these coming weeks. So you pray for God's grace. You ask God for his provision. What do we need from God? We need that steadfast love. This loving loyalty that is based on our special relationship with him. We need his help to be upright in heart. He's declared us such through the saving grace he offers, but we still long to be made righteous in actual practice. We can be sure God's going to answer that prayer because God is always true to that love. And God always does what is right. So you pray for God's provision. At the same time, we realize that we still live in this world that is full of others that are not so inclined to do what is right and to follow the Lord. And we need his protection. Verse 11, 
It says, let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. Now, it could well be that the focus here is on the foot of the arrogant, meaning others that are not trying to follow the Lord, and their hand uh, is uh, the hand of the wicked trying to uh, uh, oppress God's people. But once again, I think we miss something if we overlook the reality that no, this, this could not well be referring as well to the internal challenge that we face. The foot of arrogance could be my foot. At those moments when I am tempted to sin and think that I can do this. I can move forward into this path even though I'm going to be left in my own strength. I won't get God's grace to sin. God's grace would keep me from sin. It's not going to help me do it. The foot of arrogance can be once again that moment of temptation. God, would you save me from myself? I know I'm vulnerable. I know I'm going to face temptations today. I don't want to succumb. Would you keep the foot of arrogance from me? In the same way, the hand of the wicked could be my hand, striving to do something that violates God's word. And that very hand could drive me away from God to indulge in sin. I think there's also the dual sense here could also be referring to the uh, influence that others can have on us, that they want to have on us. The path of pride that we see others pursuing can be enticing. The uh, influence, the pressure that they can put on us to draw us away from the Lord. God, I don't want that. Would you keep that far from me today? The Lord then will preserve his people. Remember that loving loyalty. You ask for this help, you're going to get it. You don't have to fail on any given day. The Lord will preserve his people. And this appropriate reminder of the alternative to following the Lord, the Lord will defeat the wicked. Verse 12 says, there the evildoers lie fallen. And here's a glance at the path that our sinful hearts could take any of us along. But where's that lead? It leads to where the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. God, I don't want to follow that path. Lord, would you guard my heart, my sinful heart? Would you keep me from that temptation? Lord, would you, in your steadfast love, would you help me follow you? Lord, would you help me get the victory?
I get the sense that this is, uh, for David, a daily reminder. This is not just a, a, a poem that he wrote that maybe he'd go back and review once a year or so. Well, there's truth here, there's reality here that we need to keep in mind every single day. That God is the standard and the source of goodness. Turn to him for victory. The start of each new day. Claim the, the steadfast love of God. God, I know you are committed to me. Help me to commit myself to you today. Would you keep me from sin? Now, in order to know God, in order to be upright in heart, how can you know you're there? It's only one way. And the gospel is clear. Turn to Christ. If you're not sure that verse 10 describes you, you're not sure you have that special relationship with God that allows you to expect more than just what he distributes to everybody, then you can change that today. You can know for sure that Christ is your savior, that he has given you his righteousness, forgiven all your sin, and that he's committed to you. You can trust Christ as your savior today. We urge you to consider that opportunity. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we acknowledge our own inherent sinfulness and your inherent goodness. How we rejoice that your goodness includes your steadfast love and that you have demonstrated that love ultimately by sending your son to die in our place. Father, you are our only hope in this world. We need your help, Father, to safely and righteously navigate the challenges of everyday life. How that we dare not begin any day without pleading for your grace, depending on your help. Lord, we ask as well for those that don't know Christ as Savior or maybe are unsure of that, we pray that your spirit would both convict of sin and grant the gift of faith to trust Jesus as their Savior today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. In a moment, we'll sing together a stanza of our closing song. Before we do that, we'll listen to one stanza with our heads bowed, eyes closed, one last opportunity to reflect on your need for God's grace and to ask him for that help for you. At the same time, in the quietness of these coming moments, if you would like to 
uh, have some help, someone to open God's word with you and show you how you can know Christ as your savior. We have some quiet places and some people that would help you do that. If you just make your way up the aisle in these next few moments and over to this side, we have uh, some places there and uh, you can know Christ as your savior today.